When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network, New Books Network in History. This is a channel of the New Books Network, and I am the host, Jeanette Cockroft. Today, we will be talking with Andrea Friderici Ross, who is the author of Edith, the Rogue Rockefeller McCormick, I am excited to have her talk with us today. So please welcome Andrea to the program. Welcome, Andrea. Thank you. Um, I'm so pleased to be here. Thank you. Of course. Why don't we start with your telling us a little bit about you? Yeah. So uh, I live outside of Chicago, born, born and raised here, went to Northwestern University, so didn't, didn't stray far from home. Um, I currently work in, in a grade school library. I run, uh, the library here in the public school, which is just fun. It, it's just, uh, a delightful job. The kids are very young and excited to, to learn how to read and excited about books. And that feels great. Um, but it was kind of a, a zigzag path to get here. Um, out of, out of college, I went to work for the Chicago Symphony Orchestra in their administration. Um, which, uh, was, it's a fascinating place to work. Um, you kind of feel like you're, you're breathing in rarefied air there. So it's, that was lovely. Um, and then after a few years there, um, I left and went to work for Brookfield Zoo. I was the assistant to the director of the zoo and worked on a, a number of projects, um, some exhibit design, um, a number of internal projects for the zoo, Um, and also had the opportunity to write the history book for the zoo, which is called Let the Lions Roar. And that is where I first encountered Edith. All right. So let's talk a little bit about Edith. Um, Let's put her in some Gilded Age context, starting with who is Edith Rockefeller? Yes. So Edith Rockefeller was born in 1872. She was the third daughter of John D. Rockefeller, the oil tycoon. Um, Her brother came along later. Um, After her brother was born, there would be no more children. Um, They they had, I think, what they were looking for. Um, So she was born in 1872. Um, She lived most of her childhood in Cincinnati, and they had a, a lovely upbringing. Um, they, they lived on a, a property that was very wooded. They had a lot of outdoor time. Um, and they were educated at home. Their only playmates were either their cousins who lived nearby or friends from church. Um, the church was the main activity in that household. Both parents were very devout Baptists. The day started with prayer. They ended with prayer. 
the most frequent dinner guests were um, visiting uh, ministers and other people from the church. Um, so everything centered on the church. Um, I, I always say that growing up Rockefeller was not what you would think because as young children, the kids had no idea of their family's wealth. Their parents taught them to, um, to make money doing really mundane things. So they, um, got pennies for pulling weeds or for practicing their instruments. That was certainly Edith's uh, preferred way of making money. She played the cello, um, would often do it for hours a day. Um, they would catch, pen- they would, uh, they would earn pennies for catching flies. Um, so, I mean, they, and they kept track of everything that they earned and they kept track of what happened to it. So it was really intended for the church plate. It was never intended for spending. It was either saving or the church plate. Now, when Edith was in her teen years, uh, the family moved to New York City, where Standard Oil had by then set up a big presence. Um, and I believe it is in her teen years that she began to be aware of the hate that existed in society for her father. Um, because of his just ruthless business te- uh, techniques, um, you know, he had put most of the competing oil companies out of business. Um, and many in pretty harsh manners, um, because of that, they were hated. So you've probably seen, you know, history books have, have the front page cartoons that lampooned him, you know, showing him as an octopus, um, or as a snake, um, always influencing politics, um, and kind of having his finger on the pulse of everything and so on. Um, so they, in equal parts, they were asked for handouts. Um, they once the the children got involved in in um, handling all the requests uh, that came into the house. And one month, they tallied up the requests. It was fifty thousand requests that month that came in from people in dire circumstances or organizations. Or I mean, everybody was writing to the Rockefellers. You know, they have so much money; they must have some for us. Um, but also mixed in with those, with those letters, uh, were hate letters and death threats. Uh, people would camp out on their doorstep. Uh, people would father, would follow father to work. So the children all began to learn that the outside world was a very scary place. And inside was safe. Learning was safe. Reading was safe. Music was safe. All of those were good, healthy pursuits, but the outside world was a dangerous place. And that becomes a a significant part of this story. It does. And not only for Edith, but for all of her siblings. They they all develop nervous ailments. Um, Junior, as I'd like to refer to her brother, John D. Rockefeller Jr., um, <laughs> they, they all kind of became, became family members for me in a way, you know, when you, when you, um, when you're studying somebody like this and you're trying to understand how things would have affected them, um, then you have to kind of put yourself in that person's place for a while. So I kind of referred all the family members by how Edith would have, would have, um, seen them. 
But uh, anyways, they all developed nervous ailments, including the parents. Um, and they all, for the rest of their lives, had kind of a lifelong processional in and out of sanatoriums um, in order to dis- to treat these, you know, um, nervous ailments, digestive ailments, headaches, things like that. So it took its toll and it never went away. It's a more tragic story at at some level than you would expect for people named Rockefeller. Um, how does she become Edith Rockefeller McCormick? Yes. Yeah, so um, when her brother Junior was in his teen years, um, her father decided to start a private school for Junior. Uh, he hired the educator John Browning, and he found some other like-minded men in the community. Um, and a pair of young men who came along who weren't initially from the community. In fact, they were from Chicago. And of course, this this school was happening in New York. Um, but the mother, uh, Nettie, moved uh, the family to New York um, so that they could participate in this. Um, so this was Stanley and Harold McCormick, who were the sons of Cyrus McCormick, the Reaper King. The McCormicks had been raised in a very similar manner, in fact, Um, you know, also um, very devout, although they were Presbyterians, um, not Baptists, very community oriented, uh, very much about philanthropy, although for Rockefellers that came a bit later. Um, McCormicks were in that game earlier, I would say. Um, So so it was a good match. So Harold uh, became part of the school. And uh, he just kind of gradually became part of the family. He was friends with Junior. He was outgoing. He was fun-loving. He had these bright blue eyes. He loved to whistle. He loved sports. And one can imagine that for Edith, that would have been just a breath of fresh air. Indeed. So, um, um, so he went on um, a- after that little private school, he went on to Princeton, he and Stanley together. Um, Stanley and Harold were two years apart in age, but they were raised essentially as twins. So they did all of this together. And um, then when Harold graduated from, from Princeton, he asked Edith to marry him. That was in 1895. Um, so they set a date in late November. Um, the wedding did not, did not go according to plan. Um, I was going to ask you to tell us that story. Well, you know, it, it had been a season of spectacular weddings, including, um, one of the Vanderbilt weddings. And so this was Edith's grand entree into society, right? This, the Rockefellers did not, they didn't do society. They, they, they stayed to themselves. They were not having grand balls. There were no ball gowns. There were no, you know, tickets to the opera or concerts or any of that. Um, they, they, they stayed to themselves. Um, so here was Edith's grand moment, right? So she, um, father insisted that the, 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 event be at the Fifth Avenue Baptist Church, which was a little tight for Edith's uh, desires, but it would have to do so. Um, so she actually had some of the, the first few rows of pews removed in order to make room for the wedding party. 
And she moved in just cartloads of palm trees and orchids. And I mean, she just transformed the space, which would have been lovely. But the night before the wedding, um, Harold's doctors refused to let him leave the hotel room or recommended he not leave the hotel room. He had come down with pleurisy. Oh, my. And they worried that that might turn into something even more serious if he ventured out. Yes. So the night before the wedding, telegrams went out everywhere. Uh, newspapers actually helped um, spread the, the spread the news that the Rockefeller McCormick wedding, you know, which was billed as Princess of Standard Oil um, to wed Prince of McCormick Harvester. You know, it, it was it was the big yes. deal. You know, um, so the night before, they sent out notices to everybody informing them that the ceremony itself would be held in the Buckingham Hotel where the McCormicks were staying and um, would just be for family and that the uh, the reception afterwards would go on as planned in the Rockefeller home. Um, so that's what happened. They had the ceremony at, at Harold's bedside. Um, the weather did not cooperate. It was held at, at noon, um, but... There was a terrible storm, so the the sky was like dark as midnight, and thunder and lightning, and just pouring down rain. The streets, you know, they weren't paved, of course, right? They're just torrents of, of water and and mud. It was just, it was just a nightmare. Um, but that that's how they got married. Um, and then afterwards, the the reception went off as planned in the Rockefeller house. Um, Harold didn't go. Edith went um, and represented the couple. And then um, by the time she got back to the, to the hotel suite afterwards, um, completely spent, I'm sure. Um, Edith was, she was an introvert. She was not an outgoing person, um, much unlike Harold. Um, by the time she got back to the hotel suite, the storm had ended and um, Harold's fever had broken and uh, they were, they were out of the woods and, and man and wife. And what is their life like as man and wife? Yeah, so uh, they spent three years in Council Bluffs, Iowa, where Harold learned the ropes of McCormick Harvester. Um, Their first son was born there, John Rockefeller McCormick. Then they moved to Chicago. Uh, They bought a house. Um, Originally, the address was 88 Bellevue Place. They changed the address um, to represent... um, I don't know, a little bit more grandeur, to 1000 Lakeshore Drive. It was right. Uh, it was. It took up a block of Lakeshore Drive, uh, for those familiar with Chicago, between Bellevue Place and Oak Street, uh, right by the Oak Street Beach overlooking Lake Michigan. Um, and here Edith set out to become Chicago's newest grand dame. Right. They they worked with antique stealers to fill this house with treasures. Um, she'd never been allowed to spend and now she could and she was going to. <laughs> so um, they filled the house with all manner of treasures. Um, I have to say um, in her defense that her plan was that after her death, that her house would become a museum. It would become the Rockefeller Museum, the Rockefeller McCormick Museum of Chicago. Um, so that's you know she collected 
she had jewels that emeralds that had belonged to Catherine the Great that she had strung. I think it was ten emeralds um, strung on a necklace with one thousand diamonds, and um, her pearls were later appraised at two million dollars at the time. Right? I mean, unbelievable, just outlandish. Um, she she collected very very broadly but had a particular fondness for anything that had ties to royalty, particularly Napoleon. Um, so one of, one of the things she was proudest of was a dinner service that Napoleon's, that, oh, how does this work? That uh, Napoleon had gifted his sister when she married the Prince Borghese. So it, it had the Borghese coat of arms on it. and. Uh, it was 1,600 pieces, and Edith had the entire set. So she had some of Napoleon's chairs. She, it, it just, it, it is stunning <laughs> to look at the collection of what she had. And, um, and so very different from the way she was raised. And so very different from the way she was raised. And one can just imagine what her father was thinking of this in New York, right? He reads the papers. He knows what's happening. He knows she's she's entertaining lavishly. Um, he begins to hear about all of the donations that she and Harold are making, um, including their their pet project, which was a resident opera company for Chicago, the Chicago Grand Opera, and they really they supported that uh, that opera company for. Hmm, probably about 15 years, a little shy of 15 years, um, sometimes to the tune of hundreds of thousands of dollars. So that started in 1909, when, uh, and they, they continued that up through the 20s. Um, so Edith was passionate about culture. She believed that the mark of a, an evolved society is its culture that without culture, and she included in their opera at the very top of the list, she thought that was the most, that was the pinnacle um, of culture, that without that, there is no human development. That is not a luxury. It is necessary for human development. So that is where she put her money, whether it was the new uh, Chicago Orchestra that Theodore Thomas had just founded, whether it was the Art Institute, whether it was new theater, undertakings. Uh, she supported all of that um, very, very generously. Harold, for his part, um, his passion was aviation, right? He was a McCormick and the McCormicks love to tinker and it's all about the mechanics of the thing and so on. And here, you know, it's the, the birth of this new form of transportation. And Harold was just, just head over heels about this. Um, so he, he worked with some, some, designers and some aviators and uh, came up with some designs of his own, including an umbrella plane, which looks kind of how you would think it would look. And <laughs> something that he called the mustard plaster. And I, I've never actually seen, seen a picture of that, but I can kind of imagine what that might look like. Um, but he was very interested in aviation. He was, um, Know, communicating with the rights and with other people involved in aviation at the time. He was 
um, at the forefront of setting up the first international aviation meet in Chicago in 1909. Um, we now know that as the Chicago Air and Water Show. It's still going on. Um, he put a, he poured a lot of money into that, um, and it was probably the for a lot of people their first glimpse at an airplane. For for some people, it was also a glimpse of something grimmer. Um, a couple of pilots, as they were attempting stunts, fell to their deaths. Um, so there was, you know, there there was a lot of kinks to be worked out. Um, but it was a time of invention and excitement, and um, Harold was all in. <laughs> yeah, we noted a few minutes ago that um, the Rockefeller family has a thread of mental health issues running through it. Um, it is the same for the McCormicks, right? Well, it is the same for the McCormicks. And in fact, right about that same time, this was in, in 1905 now, um, there was a, a great tragedy in that family. When um, So back up a few decades, um, an older sibling, Mary Virginia, um, had succumbed to madness in her teen years. She was older than Harold and Stanley. Um, so they would have seen this, right? They would have had front row seats to this horrible thing that was happening in their house. Um, she, at night, sometimes she would crawl out the window, sneak out on the roof. Um, she she played the piano for hours, just banging on the piano um, until her fingers bled. Um, and they did everything they could to keep this quiet, uh, to keep this in-house. Um, but eventually it became clear that they could not care for her safely in the home. Um, so she was institutionalized. Um, this was devastating to Nettie. Cyrus McCormick, had he, he died, um, he, he was much, much older than his wife. Um, and he died while the, uh, while Harold and Stanley were still fairly young. Um, so anyways, Mary Virginia, um, yeah, that her story didn't end well, but then in 19, uh, in the early 1900s, it became clear that there were issues with Stanley as well. And remember he and Harold were very, very close. Um, and I, I believe that Harold also was kind of always assigned to look out for Stanley, you know, that they had some inkling that something was not quite right there. But Stanley was brilliant and hardworking. Um, he graduated at the top of his class in Princeton and um, went on to Northwestern Law School, um, destined for a life in McCormick Harvester, right? Um, soon to become International Harvester um, as it merged with some other agricultural implement companies. Um, but then in 1904, uh, he married Catherine Dexter. Um, and on the honeymoon, it became clear that things were not right. Um, both mother-in-law, bo both of the mothers, incidentally, accompanied them on the honeymoon, which is a little concerning. Um, but um, then in 1905, uh, when they returned and they were living in Boston, he had a breakdown and was initially um, sent to McLean Hospital, which had, you know, a psychiatric hospital in, in Boston. Um, and then eventually he was um, sent out to uh, Montecito, California, 
the family had an estate out there called Riven Rock, which ironically Stanley had helped design for the care of Mary Virginia, um, but she by now was elsewhere. So Stanley ended up confined in Riven Rock. Um, the whole thing, the bars on the windows, all the furniture, you know, nailed down. Um, he was prone to violence and, um, he lived the remainder of his life there. So yes, mental illness was a very real issue in the McCormick family, as well as in the Rockefeller family, not just these little nervous nervous ailments that they had, but um, Edith's older sister, Bessie, um, also had some very severe mental illness. And she passed in the early 1900s as well. So it was very real. And they knew, you know, kind of who's next must have been. A very frightening thought. Yes. Yes. Um, How does this um, impact the, the, the children that Edith and Harold have. Yeah. Okay. So Edith and Harold had five children. However, um, in the early 1900s, Edith around Christmas time, um, took, um, the firstborn John Rockefeller McCormick and the second born who was Harold Fowler McCormick Jr. They called him Fowler out to the Rockefeller family estate in the Hudson Valley. Um, And while there, the boys came down with scarlet fever. Fowler would survive, but John, who they called Jack, uh, did not. Uh, That was devastating, absolutely devastating to the entire family. Then a few years after that, uh, well, they had, they had another, they had a daughter, they had Muriel McCormick, Um, and she, from the very get go had emotional issues, um, very difficult to manage. And then, uh, the next one was Editha, uh, McCormick and she died. She, she was ill from the get go and she died before her first birthday. Um, and then finally Matilde. So there were, there were three surviving children, um, and they were very well attended to Edith. I believe after the loss of Editha, after the loss of first Jack and then Editha, I believe that Edith really um, stepped back from parenting and from any emotional attachment. Um, you know, she had she had always been frightened of the outside world. She believed there were dangers outside the doorstep. Um, you know, other, other things going on at the time, you know, Ida Tarbell was working on this absolutely scathing series about John D. Rockefeller in the Coors magazine. That was a series. It went on and on. And Edith kept learning all sorts of interesting things about her family, some of which she probably didn't know, including about a beloved grandfather. Um, so that was going on. Um, there was the, the Iroquois theater fire here in Chicago, um, where 600 people died. Um, of course there was the Titanic as we moved then into the 1910s there. Um, so there were just, there were dangers everywhere. Um, but these, these things were inside, right? I keep thinking about like the, you know, that babysitter movie, you know, the call came from inside the house, you know, this, these were things, um, that she felt that she could control inside her home. 
Um, so I believe that after that, after Editha's death, that Edith stepped back and um, let the governesses and the tutors and the nurses uh, care for the children. And she moved into a very kind of managerial role, um, you know, hiring the best of all those um, and overseeing, but not becoming very emotionally involved anymore. So how does she, how does Edith end up in Switzerland with Carl Jung? How, yes. how is this connected to this family evolution? So um, in 1911, 1912, she begins to have panic attacks. Um, and they, you know, they have to cancel events that they have. They have to leave from events and go home. They're um, not only worried about the newspaper stories that this will generate, um, but they wonder if she's next. Right. Um, so she has been, she's done a tour of all the sanatoriums and that hasn't really worked out well for her because, you know, it's great while you're there, but then, then you go home and all the pressures resume and yeah, lo and behold, you're, you're back to where you started. So she had heard about this new, um, type of therapy that was being done by yet little known Carl Jung, who happened to be at uh, Fordham, he happened to be at a conference at Fordham University in New York when Edith was out there visiting her father. And um, so they, he, he ha she had him out to the house and they talked and he, you know, he knew an opportunity when he saw it, I'm sure. Um, and she grew certain that he was the only person to help her. So um, it was a bit of a back and forth, but um, eventually uh, she, it, he escorted her over to Switzerland. She was terrified of, of the crossing, but somehow he got her over there. I don't know how he did that. Um, and she brought along, um, well, it, initially, um, initially she brought along Fowler, although he came back to go to school at Groton, and she brought along Mathilde, um, who was then sent off to a sanatorium in the mountains of Davos because of some lingering respiratory issues she had. So she would spend the next few years there. Um, and then Muriel also came over eventually. Um, but anyway, she went over for a few months for this, you know, new type of, of therapy, uh, psychoanalysis, they called it at the time with Carl Jung. Um, and that would grow into eight years in Switzerland. And uh, she thrived in Switzerland. She had been, you know, set free from all of her daily responsibilities. Other people were raising her children. Uh, she didn't have any social obligations. People weren't sending her mail, asking for money, asking for assistance with anything, asking her to sit on yet another committee, asking her to, you know, do anything. Um, she didn't even have households to a point. Uh, she lived in a hotel, the Hotel Barra Lock, for eight years uh, while she went through this, this uh, psychoanalysis with Carl Jung. Um, in the meantime, World War I started, and Switzerland, turns out, was a really good place to be, right? 
So she did start uh, supporting some of the artists who had come to, to Switzerland as a refuge, um, some composers, uh, mainly American composers. Um, she supported Carl Jung um, significantly by underwriting translations of his writings into English and other, other languages. Um, she bought a physical location for a psychological club where people who believed in his methods could gather and um, attend lectures and browse the library and uh, socialize and so on. Um, and she also supported a young writer there for 18 months, uh, a certain James Joyce, as he was writing Ulysses. Um, so she, she had really good taste. <laughs> she, she, she knew her stuff, and she, uh, she supported some really uh, deserving people, some really talented people. And this is an opportunity for unfettered intellectual development as well, is it not? Something in the United States in this period that's not always completely available to women of her class. That's absolutely true, right? She was not given the opportunity to go to university. That, that was not something that women generally did at that time, although her, her older sister did for a bit, but it didn't go terribly well. She went to Vassar. Um, so Edith and her sister Alta were not given that opportunity. Um, junior, junior was, of course, uh, he had a different path than they did. Um, but Carl Jung suggested a course of study for Edith, as he did for many of the women who came to him, many of the intelligent women who he felt, uh, were, were, had been, had been shortchanged in that regard in terms of education. Um, so she undertook an incredible course of study while she was there. She had university, she had professors from the university of Zurich come to her hotel suite and, uh, to classes in religion and philosophy and biology and botany and languages. She's a very, very talented linguist. Uh, that was something that she started when she was quite young, actually. Um, and, um, when she, she, she had an incredible library. Um, after she died, they, they cataloged that. Um, about 16,000 volumes, which is tremendous. Um, and she tried to, whenever, whenever possible, to read in the author's native language because she felt that too much was lost in the translation. And uh, we know that she actually read this because there would be notes in the margins in her handwriting making connections to other other things she had read, other philosophers, whatever. Isn't um, that, an, that sounds like an extraordinary opportunity. Yes, it was an extraordinary opportunity. And she, um, she kept up this practice of, of study for the rest of her life. Um, I wish I had those books. Um, she, she, got in the habit of dating when she started them and when she ended them. So that in, in and of itself, it would be, would be fascinating. You know, how long did it take you to read, you know, this, this work by Nietzsche or, you know, whatever. Um, so uh, yes, she, she had abandoned the Baptist upbringing that had been forced upon her and was developing her own ideas about truth about what she believed to be truth. And she felt 
that Carl Jung was an important step in that process, that he was, that he could help humanity along its evolutionary path. So um, she was a great believer in, in his work. He, whether and thanks for her financial support or whether he just believed that this was that, that, that she understood his philosophies and his methods. Um, he anointed her as an analyst and uh, she started seeing patients while she was in Zurich. Um, so yeah, she was very happy there. So where, where are Harold and her family in all of this? Yes. So um, Fowler is first at Groton and, and then, um, then off at university Matilde is still in the mountains of Davos in the sanatorium, um, doing her own thing there. We'll hear more about her later. Um, and then Muriel was um, in Zurich with Edith, but in a different suite of rooms at the hotel and being overlooked by a governess. Um, she went to day school in, in Zurich. Um, and then Harold went back and forth. So Harold is deeply involved in International Harvester. Um, he and his brother Cyrus Jr. are, you know, handing off the presidency back and forth. Um, and Harold, as best as possible, is going over and back to support Edith and really trying to trying to get her back to the states, which is not going well. She doesn't want to go. She's happy. Um, there's a war going on, and you know they're sinking ships. So you know. Dangerous to begin with. Now it's even worse, right? Um, so why would she want to go back? Um, so, but but Edith's father and Harold's mother and others keep saying, no, you know, she needs to come back. It's not safe. She needs to be here with us and all this. So, um, in hmm, I forget the exact year, but let's say about 1920 or so, Harold, who's still very very involved with Chicago Grand Opera. Right. He was president for many years, and he and Edith are still supporting this, um, mainly in terms of fronting the ticket revenue at the beginning of the season, you know, to, you know, to, to the tune of $300,000 back then, right? Um, some of that they got back, some of it didn't. But anyways, they were very involved with, with opera. And uh, while, the, while the opera was in New York for a little while, um, Harold... You know, the, the stereotypical uh, backstage door encounter with a young singer who wants a role with the Chicago Grand Opera. Um, and, you know, it turns out she's a terrible singer, but she's really beautiful. And Harold falls in love. So he, he must, must have a relationship with her. Her name is Gana Walska. Um, she is Polish. By birth, she has um, already been married a couple of times. She is newly widowed. She is traveling over to Paris, um, so Harold figures out a way to get on a, the same steamer. Um, so he is wooing her on board. Also on board is Alexander Smith Cochran, who was the carpet king. <laughs> he is also wooing Ghana, um, and. Um, on that crossing, Harold asks Donna, if, if I were single, would you marry me? And, and he says, and she says, no. Um, but uh, he, you know, when they land, he, he goes on to Zurich and he asks Edith for a divorce. 
and she refuses. She doesn't want a divorce, um, but he persists. Um, and you know, this goes on for a while. Um, but eventually she acquiesces. So, and this is great. This is like the story deserving of, of its own opera. Um, and in fact, this serves as the, as the inspiration for the love triangle in Citizen Kane. Yes. Yes. Um, according to Wells. Um, so, um, Harold, yay. She's going to grant me a divorce. He rushes to Paris to inform Ghana that, uh, that he's free and uh, he, he gets there, but uh, he discovers that she has married the carpet King in the meantime. So, you know, poor Harold, he's, he is truly brokenhearted. He, he was, you know, all in on this, um, but he goes back to Zurich and he tries to repair this, this broken relationship. So that's the point where Edith finally says, okay, it's time to go home. So somehow, despite what are by now some really crippling phobias about travel. She manages to make it back to Chicago. She tries to see um, her father on the way back in New York. Her mother has died in the meantime, which, you know, Edith wasn't there for that. And that was not good. Um, She tries to see her father on the way back, but Edith has brought back a friend from Zurich, um, a young architect by the name of Edwin Krenn. Um, Just before she came back, Edith donated land to the Cook County Forest Preserve District for the express purpose of building a zoo, which would become Brookfield Zoo. So she brings back Edwin in part so that he can design that zoo, which is not what ends up happening, but that's her plan. So she has Edwin in tow and her father says, no, I'm sorry, I refuse to see him. So she doesn't see her father. She returns to Chicago. Uh, Her father's pretty fed up with her by now. Right. Um, so she intends to repair this marriage, but Harold, no, he's done. Um, in fact, he, he wants to marry Ghana. Um, this relationship with the carpet King is not going well. He sees the end in sight. Um, so he insists on a divorce and, uh, Edith's father and brother-in-law, her, her sister, Alta's husband, Parmalee Prentice, um, set her up with an attorney for the purpose of the divorce. Although Edith was adamant she didn't want this. And, you know, she was trying to avoid the whole thing by not getting a lawyer, by not answering the phone, by not answering the door. She's just going to avoid it. Um, but she gets railroaded into this terrible divorce. And as, as part of the settlement, she has to buy Harold out of not only the house that they have at 1000 Lakeshore Drive, but the summer house that they had built up in Lake Forest called Villa Turicum. Um, so she, she wants to live in the house at 1000 Lakeshore Drive and she doesn't want Ghana to end up in the house up in Lake Forest. So she has to, you know, pay Harold for half of both of those homes. So that becomes a crippling, crippling payment that she, she has to handle. Um, so what is, what does her post-divorce life look like? Yeah. So, um, very different than before she left. Chicago in the first place. Um, she doesn't entertain as frequently, but she does if there is royalty in town um, or other, other uh, you know, significant people that she feels she needs to, to fit. Um, she gets involved with the Women's World Fairs, which take place here in the mid-1920s, because, you know, the Women's World has changed now. 1920, the women can vote. 
And uh, Edith is now, she was not a suffragist, um, but she got on board, you know, kind of eventually as, as, as that ball started rolling downhill, she was on board and um, she became involved with her own real estate business together with Edwin Kren and a friend of his originally from the Ukraine, Edward Dato, they founded the firm of Kren and Dato. And they bought up all this land along the new expanded L lines. Um, and they did great. The, the first lots that they sold were actually, um, was actually land in Riverside um, adjacent to what was going to be the new Brookfield Zoo. Um, and uh, then they just started growing and growing and growing. Um, and it was a tremendously successful business until 1927 when the real estate market started to slow. And then 1929, when everything came crashing down and Edith was left holding all of this land that nobody could buy. So serious financial difficulty now, right? Something she never thought would happen to her. Um, this is accompanied by the fact that she is now diagnosed with breast cancer. Um, although they don't actually tell her that. <laughs> uh, they really keep most of the medical information and her prognosis uh, to themselves. Um, they tell her father, they tell her brother, um, but it is deemed best if she does not know. Um, why, so do, why, she, do you think, why do you think that's their perspective? So that, that was they, not... Yeah, it wasn't terribly co uncommon at that time, right, to say, no, 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 they, they can't handle this information. If, if they know this, they'll just give up. And, you know, it's, it's best if they don't know. Having said that, however, this was a pattern for Edith throughout her life, that while she was in Zurich, her Swiss bankers were communicating with her father about her situation there. Or, um, oh, there were other examples. Oh, during the divorce proceedings... Her lawyer is communicating with her father and her brother about Edith's state of mind and what he thinks she will accept and won't accept. And, you know, but they are they are not to tell her that that he's had this communication with them. So this is, this is an ongoing thing in her life. <laughs> they continue to control the purse strings for the entirety of her life. Right. They absolutely did. And in those last few years of her life, she appealed to her brother and her father time and again, explaining that, you know, these were unforeseen circumstances and she is now left in a terrible situation and the bankers are knocking on the door and what can she do and can't they please help? And the response is always the same. The response is always, we regret that we feel it would not be in your best interest for us to provide this assistance. And it isn't until about a month before Edith dies that her brother steps in. Uh, he offers to set her up in a suite at the Drake Hotel, provided that she close up both of her homes and fire her staffs. She gives him some of her jewelry as collateral. And that is where uh, Edith dies in August of 1932 is in the Drake Hotel. Uh, I don't know 100% that this is true, but I believe that she could see her house out the window. <sighs> Do you it's think a heartbreaking Edith, story. Oh, it, it's, a, it's horrible. It's, it really is. Yeah. Um, 
do you think she's a feminist? So that was one of the very interesting things about writing this book was that uh, she didn't start out that way at all. She started out believing, as her mother did, that to be a wife and a mother is the highest honor that a woman can can gain. And Edith wrote articles about that as a young mother, about the glory of motherhood and all of this. But then you begin to see her progression. And in the 1920s, she's speaking out about how the woman is no longer, you know, this hothouse flower and how she is coming into her own. And Edith absolutely did come into her own, despite all of these very powerful forces around her that were really forcing her into a very small woman-sized box. (laughs) Um, So the, the tragic thing about this is that were it not for a few factors, the divorce settlement, the stock market crash, and the fact that she contracted cancer and was unable to recover in time, um, we would have two spectacular museums, one in Lake Forest, one in Chicago, Rockefeller Museum, Rockefeller McCormick Museum. And we would all know her name because she would have given all of these treasures to the city of Chicago. But because of the way her life unfolded and because of the fact that she had gone from being perhaps the nation's richest woman at the time of her marriage, she was bankrupt at the time of her death and they had to auction off all of her belongings. It was all just scattered to the wind. That is heartbreaking. It is heartbreaking. So, but she she accomplished some things in her life, right? Carl Jung, that's an accomplishment right there. James Absolutely. Joyce, some of the others, some of the conductors, composers she supported. Um, she started Brookfield Zoo and an infectious diseases institute that she and Harold started after their first son Jack's death helped curb helped curb scarlet fever. They also endowed the Journal of Infectious Diseases, which is still going strong. Um, and I mean. A myriad of other things, right? There are all sorts of houses and apartment buildings and so on standing in Chicago that her firm built. Um, But she was just kind of erased. A a lot of historians believe that Harold and Junior probably burned her papers after her death, thereby completely erasing her voice. Then what sort of primary materials did you have to work with? Yeah, so um, it was interesting, you know, when you go to the McCormick Family Archives or out to the Rockefeller Archives Center, um, and you, you know, you can look through all the family papers, right? It's all there. Um, But, you know, the men have huge files, right? I mean, boxes and boxes and boxes and series and series and series. Um, And even the women have considerable collections, um, including uh, Harold's mother, Nettie McCormick. She was a great philanthropist. And his uh, sister, Anita McCormick Blaine, who was very involved in, um, in education here in Chicago. Um, so they have significant files. But Edith, no, no, Edith has these wee little files, very slim. Um, so it became, it became kind of a scavenger hunt to see what I could find and what I could piece together. Um, and, you know, I, you know, I found a few letters at University of Chicago archives and a few letters at the Newberry Library and a few at the Chicago History Museum. And, you know, bit by bit, you just kind of gather all this. And I made timelines and looked at steamer manifests and, you know, read anything I could 
you know, about people that was written by people around her because sometimes she's yes. just mentioned in passing, you know. <laughs> so it's just kind of a matter of, of piecing things together until suddenly kind of this personality emerges. And she's always been kind of painted in the in the Rockefeller history books and the McCormick history books as the crazy one. Yes. Um, but reading her things, she didn't sound crazy, right? She sounded like a very, very intelligent woman who was perhaps born at the wrong time. Yes. Not crazy. No. Independent. Independent. And honestly, it made me glad that I'm not saddled with a last name like that, that I'm not forced. Yes. And, and I'm not saying in the, you know, today that's probably not true. Um, but um, I have opportunities in my life that Edith never had. Yes. Because of the stratus of society that she was born into. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that was, that's kind of an interesting awakening, yes. right? <laughs> absolutely fascinating um thank you so much i don't want to take up any more of your time but let's finish up with this question what are you working on now yeah so i'm working on another biography of a forgotten chicago woman um i'm i'm pretty well along um it's i'm not going to jinx it i'm a little bit superstitious about saying who it is um, okay. I, I have some interest um, from a publisher, but nothing certain. So I, I don't want to no, jinx no, this. Of course. Um, but she was, uh, she overlapped some with Edith in various ways and is very, very deserving of her own story. And I think will be another exploration of the roles available to women in the late yes. 1800s, early 1900s, and the avenues that weren't available to them and what they did to you know, try and try and broaden that women's sphere a little bit. Yes. So, ah, it sounds yeah. like it sounds like you're off on another grand adventure. It is. It's I, you know, I love this part. I love I love the digging around. And uh, in fact, I'm I'm off to see her childhood home uh, next week. Um, first, first, I'll visit her grave um, and pay my respects. Um, and uh, childhood home and some other important stops are, are on the agenda. Um, but I, I love this part. It's, uh, it's, it's fascinating to see a woman's story come to life. Absolutely. Well, I look forward to seeing that book. Um, thank you so very much for your time. I appreciate it, Andrea. Fascinating, fascinating book. Thank you so much. Thank you for the opportunity to tell Edith's story. Appreciate it.